Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrugal. Silicon Valley Bank was not a normal bank. It had experienced wild growth, quadrupling deposits over the pandemic tech boom years. The bulk of other people's money that the bank was holding came from startups and tech people. When a startup raises millions of dollars, it needs to park it somewhere. That somewhere became, quite often, Silicon Valley Bank. All that tech business had made the company the 16th largest bank in the country and the one financial institution most associated with the vaunted Bay Area innovation ecosystem. And then, over the course of maybe 48 hours, it all went poof. Hit by a panic-fueled bank run, it was taken over by regulators on Friday morning. There's a plan to make all depositors whole, but what happens now? We find out after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. It all happened so fast. A stalwart Silicon Valley bank, the literal Silicon Valley bank, collapsed in dramatic fashion and was taken over by the FDIC. By now, the contours of what happened have emerged. The bank had their money tied up long term in government bonds. The value of those bonds fell as interest rates went up. When the bank went to the market to stabilize its financial position, some powerful tech people sounded the alarm, and within 48 hours, a bank run had wiped them out. But what do we make of all this? Was this just a freak occurrence? Who is to blame? Why did this happen? What does it say about other banks? Time to start getting some answers, and to help us do that, we're joined by a fascinating panel here. First up, we've got Mark Calvi, senior reporter covering banking and finance with the San Francisco Business Times. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. We've also got Margaret O'Mara, historian of the modern U.S. at the University of Washington. She writes and teaches about the growth of the high-tech economy, the history of American politics, and the connections between the two. Germane to this topic, she's the author of The Code, Silicon Valley, and the Remaking of America. Welcome, Margaret. Thanks. Great to be here. And we've got Natasha uh, Natasha Mascarenas. She's a senior reporter at TechCrunch. Welcome, Natasha. Hello. Thanks for having me. Um, Mark, let's start with you. When your friends come up to you and they're like, all right, Mark, we know you cover banking. What the heck happened at Silicon Valley Bank? What do you tell them? 
I, I tell them that it's it's bigger than Silicon Valley Bank. Yes, they focused on the tech sector, and I think uh, a lot of observers are blaming this on the high-tech startups that they banked, but it really does go back to their investment portfolio. Some some sad, stupid mistakes were made in terms of depending on those all those deposits and then investing them long, and as interest rates went up, there were huge losses on their bond portfolio. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I'm I'm sitting here looking at a chart, Silicon Valley Bank deposits. They're basically around $50 billion until almost we get to 2020. And then they just skyrocket into 2021 to you know close to $200 billion um, at the peak. That's an enormous amount of money that was washing into this bank. I mean, quadrupling the deposits in you know, just the span of a year, basically. Um, was this just a case of a bank that was kind of in over its head, like just too awash in money? Unfortunately, no, it's not just uh, relates just to Silicon Valley Bank. The the government stepped up aggressively during COVID and flooded the system with capital, with money, and it found a place, you know, in places like the stock market and in the banks. And as as you know, San Francisco is a a global center of high risk capital. So as people went further and further out on uh, riskier bets to try to earn a return, uh, we were receiving a lot of that money here in the Bay Area. Hmm. So now that we've seen this collapse happen and we've had the FDIC move in, they've basically put in place a new CEO. They've created like a new quote unquote bridge bank that's been arranged to kind of do all the stuff that the old bank did, but with new management. How does this all work? Like (laughs) to walk us through some of the steps that are actually going on down there in Santa Clara County right now. Yes, they have a new experienced CEO to to run the show. So they're going to try to operate it, um, as they say, business as as usual, typical operations of of a bank as they look for a buyer. Uh, So they're they're you know, they're planning that second auction for the the assets of the failed bank. Time will tell how this emerges, whether it's another bank that steps forward or perhaps an investor group. But um, at this point, they're trying to operate as usual to calm. You know, obviously, depositors got all their money on Monday, which was a huge step. But um, it's the the future of Silicon Valley Bank is still one big question mark. Yeah. I mean, would you call the deal that was put together to get depositors their money? Would you call that a bank bailout in the way that we came to understand it in the mid aughts? I don't think it's similar to the uh, the mid aughts, as you put it, that bailout, because the management has been t- removed. The shareholders and the investors uh, are are basically wiped out. Uh, so I think that's a step in the right direction for, you know, having those taking the risk on a bank pay the price when it fails. Um, I don't think we can operate as a nation with question marks. If I put my money in a bank for a deposit, am I going to get it back? You can't, you've got to operate with greater trust than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Margaret O'Mara, historian. I mean, one of the fascinating things about this story is the sort of something old, something new components. Like the FDIC, which takes over the bank, which created in the 1930s, like exactly basically to step into a situation like this. That's right. Yeah. It, in fact, uh, exactly 90 years ago, this week was the famous bank holiday that 
Franklin Roosevelt declared upon entering office in response to a, a bank run, a panic, people taking their money out and, and putting it under the mattress because there was no insurance. There was no deposit insurance for small depositors. And um, the Great Depression had caused this tremendous bank instability that it took really bold federal moves to fix. And I think that that lesson is something that regulators and lawmakers have taken ever since. I have this vision of Joe Biden sitting in the Oval Office this weekend listening to Franklin Roosevelt's yeah. fireside chat on the banking crisis. Um, maybe not. But but there is this parallel that's really striking. Yeah. I mean, in your work on Silicon Valley, you've really highlighted the interrelationship between the development of these technology companies and the financial system. And normally we associate that system with venture capital. But Silicon Valley Bank had really come to play a crucial connective role in this ecosystem, too. Yeah. Yeah, it was really critical. I mean, it was one of those kind of distinctive creatures of what I call the entrepreneurial Galapagos of Silicon Valley that develops from the, uh, you know, 60s, 70s and 80s. Uh, these service firms, whether it be law firms or venture capital firms, or in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, banks that were willing to kind of deviate from established industry practice and cater to the distinctive needs of high-tech startups. And that's exactly why SVB came into being in the early 80s. It was um, providing loans to companies that would not, that regular banks wouldn't loan to. It was forging very close ties with the venture capital community, the Silicon Valley networks that really have made this place tick for generation to generation were deeply, deeply embedded in Silicon Valley Bank. It was responsible for its great success and also contributes to why it ended up in the place that it is now <laughs> and, mm. and had to, you know, that that the the real kind of catering to the tech industry was brought it great, uh, great rewards and also uh, helped ultimately bring it down. Yeah. Natasha, you've been reporting on the something new part of the story, which is to say the kind of speed and method method that the panic spread in group chats and on Twitter. I mean, how I've heard it is that most startups who pulled their money out actually just found out through these big group chats that maybe they should do that. 100%. I mean, if it wasn't a group chat, it was your investor calling you in the morning or it was on Twitter. I mean, I did still talk to some founders who said that they weren't even taking their own investors seriously until they jumped on Twitter and that was all they could see on their timelines, which was founders and, and other colleagues in the tech ecosystem saying phrases like bank run, saying phrases like game theory, we need to move our money out. And so I do think, you know, the in terms of just the whiplash that happened, I saw, I I mean, I saw things go from panic to fear to relief when the Fed step in. But now today on, on, on Tuesday, caution. I mean, it's a it's a optimistic caution, but it's also, I think, a little bit of a frantic caution among mm. startup founders. Because people are just sort of like wrung out from having been on this roller coaster for a while. Totally. I mean, you know, think about the fact that as a startup founder, in order to do your job, not even disrupt an entire industry, not go up against a well-capitalized public company, but to pay your employees during a downturn is already difficult. And now we see the downturn collapse even further when startups first thought that maybe they don't have access to any of their funding. I talked to one founder who had over $3 million in the bank. They had just closed it weeks prior. And they said, listen, I don't want to participate in a bank run, but the game theory is if, you know, if 
you don't, you might lose your company. And if you do, it's not that big of a deal. At least I'll be able to exist and and build. So, you know, there was a, definitely a lot of tension there. And I think it, a lot of it came down to the basics of wanting to be able to operate, yeah. not just disrupt. We're discussing the fallout surrounding the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, including its impact on customers, the Bay Area, possibly other banks. We're talking with Natasha Mascarenas. She's a senior reporter at TechCrunch. Margaret O'Mara, historian of the modern United States at University of Washington, also author of the book The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America, as well as Mark Calvi, senior reporter covering banking and finance with the San Francisco Business Times. We'd love to hear from you. Have you been affected by what happened at Silicon Valley Bank? Were you a customer? Do you even work for um, the bank or a company that banked with them? Give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. Of course, the face of this is a bunch of venture capital firms, but we know that there's a lot of other people who've been affected. Number is 866-733-6786. Emails, forum at kqed.org. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're KQED Forum. Uh, you know, Mark, um, you told one of your uh, one of our producers that a uh, fascinating thing about a previous bank collapse from about 15 years ago. I think it was IndyMac, where blogs were implicated in the failure of that bank. Is that right? Yes. At the time, I spoke with Sheila Bear, who uh, chaired the FDAC at that time, and she told me that she regretted not understanding the power of the blogs. She, I, I think the Fed, the, I think the FDIC was uh, appalled seeing people knocking on the glass doors of the bank trying to get access to their money, which is exactly what the FDIC was created to prevent. And so she said they underestimated the power of the blogs. And I think uh, if the blogs were powerful then in 2008, they're on steroids now with the speed with which. Um, news travels via social media and these group chats. Right. I just, you know, talk about something old, something new, but the uh, in this case, the something old is the blogs of 15 years ago versus, you know, the the Twitter of today. Um, wanted to ask you one other uh, kind of newsy thing. Um, just this morning, like a few minutes ago, um, the Department of Justice announced that they were going to open an investigation into Silicon Valley Bank. Is is this the kind of investigation where they're kind of looking at, you know, insider trading? Was there fraud or is it a, a kind of deeper investigation of the problems at the bank? I don't think they're going to leave any stone unturned in terms of investigating what happened, what went wrong so quickly, given the systemic risk it posed, by, in which the regulators realized by Sunday, uh, thanks to a lot of people, VCs and others, really pointing out, hey, this is your role within the system is to stop the contagion effect of bank runs. Mm. And we're also probably going to see an SEC investigation too, yeah? You can be certain of that. Yeah. How long do you think it takes for that to get completed? You know, I, I, I'd only be guessing, but I, I know this is a hot topic politically, as you can imagine. Yeah, absolutely. We are discussing the fallout surrounding what happened at the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. We're going to take some of your calls and your comments afterwards. Of course, panel here is San Francisco Business Times, Mark Calvi, historian Margaret O'Mara, and TechCrunch's Natasha Muscarenas. We'll be back with more. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence. 
June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. We're discussing the fallout surrounding the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank late last week and takeover by the FDIC. Joined by Natasha Mascarenas, senior reporter at TechCrunch, Margaret O'Mara, historian at the University of Washington, author of The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America, and Mark Calvi, covers banking and finance for the San Francisco Business Times. Let's uh, bring in some callers. This is really a big story in the community here. Uh, Mark in Palo Alto, welcome. Hey, Mark, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Tell us your story. So, yeah. No, I mean, I had an up to, up, up to sort of close personal front row seat to all of this in the last five days, six days or so. And the fascinating thing, I guess I would say to you, is that watching sort of public and private executives, life sciences, uh, biotech, um, uh, tech, uh, and also the VCs and the others that sort of support that infrastructure – what fascinated me was that this was, they're not as sophisticated and smart as everybody hopes and thinks that they are. In other words, <laughs> they are swayed so easily by – it reminded me of high school, right? Mm-hmm. Do you think she's pretty? Do you think he's hot? Like, it was like, what do you think? What do you think? And then the person that was courageous enough to share the first thought, everyone just sort of jumped onto that bandwagon. Mm-hmm. And so on Thursday, you know, and I, I was part of a lot of these group uh, chats, Etc. And you see everyone sort of criticizing the depositors. Oh, they, they ran with their money. They don't know what they're doing. By Thursday afternoon, it was, well, now VCs are telling founders and portfolio companies to leave. Oh, how silly. Everybody's panicking. Then by Friday afternoon, it was, if you're part of a public company, we have to race to make a public statement. Well, what's that statement going to say? I don't know, but we have to do it because if we don't do it, we're going to get shorted and we can't get shorted. And so you saw that. And if people were just a little bit more patient and thoughtful, Sunday night, it was all resolved in the sense that the, SV, uh, the sort of joint statement that came out, the SVB depositors were made whole. They're protected. Yeah. I'm sure everybody's still facing with temporary challenges of accessing their money, paying vendors, making payroll, etc. But it was just fascinating to me. Of It was a lot of follow the leader, and the leader always wasn't there with a well-thought-out thought. That's so interesting. You know, Mark, um, is your company now fine like you you feel like you personally and the, the company you know you're in you're in solid position now yeah i mean you know there's the temporary hiccup of you know you had to scramble so without question hey um let's go set up some accounts elsewhere i mean without naming names i really want to applaud plenty of other banks who were working around the clock all weekend long to enable companies like ours and plenty of other companies i'm sure to open new accounts to expedite their kyc know your customer reviews uh, to take funds in that could get out of SVB. SVB's website yesterday was not exactly the easiest thing to maneuver, but, you know, if you stayed with it, you got there, and you were able to initiate wires to get your money out of SVB, go move it to, thankfully, other accounts that either you had or that you set up. And then the question will be, you know, kind of getting that money out and deployed to the, uh, to the outside world now to pay your employees, to pay your vendors. One side point that I'd like to point out is I actually had uh, multiple vendors approach us and ask us not to pay them because they had accounts with SVB and they didn't huh. want the money in SVB to then have to excavate it out. 
Oh, man. What a mess. I mean, if there's one thing you can say, it is what a mess. Thank you so much, Mark, for sharing the uh, upfront and uh, close experience with this uh, bank failure. You know, uh, Mark Calvi, wanted to return to you a, a little bit on we, we know what the, the, this mess happened. <laughs> we know the headaches it created for people like Mark and, and many others. We also know that what happened was basically interest rates went up, which wrong-footed Silicon Valley Bank on a bunch of investments that they had made, and they got caught with all these bonds that were plummeting in value. Many other banks are in a not dissimilar situation in that they, they have those same bonds on their books, but Silicon Valley Bank had way, way more than these other uh, banks. What is What was behind that decision-making? Like, what could we say, like, what, what was the purpose of that for the bank when, you know, interest rates were widely expected to go up? The bank was hoping to make the you know the margin go out further on the risk curve, the lo- longer duration in the bonds, which were paying higher rates, uh, even though you had deposits that could walk out the door at any minute. Uh, so that was where they made their big miss, that the assets and the liabilities of the bank didn't match up. And uh, borrowing short and lending long to make that difference, that, that interest margin, um, is what Chuck Schwab once critically said, that works wonderfully until it doesn't. That's how quickly <laughs> it snaps. Uh, you know, when once the rates start moving higher, and apparently they weren't listening to Fed Chairman Powell, who was saying we're going to be raising rates a year ago. In fact, this month they were going to raise rates and fight inflation. I mean, it was just so widely expected, um, and it feels like just such a strange uh, piece of decision making. I mean, it's also come out that Silicon Valley Bank didn't have a risk officer. Uh, in place for much of uh, this this time period in question of, of turmoil. I mean, how unusual is it for a bank to have a key role like that go unfilled So it's, uh, since I think it was last April? Well, one banker told me over the weekend that's quite unusual, and you didn't have somebody in the room sounding the alarm and saying, hey, canary in the coal mine, there's trouble. We've got to uh, uh, un- you know unload these bonds and take our losses earlier rather than waiting for several rate hikes and for the losses to mount on the portfolio. Yeah. Margaret Omar, it seems that, you know, every time we have a big bank collapse, it's like uh, a new vein of risk is sort of exposed in the system. So for people who are thinking back to the mid-aughts again, and they're thinking about Mm -hmm. the toxic assets that were represented by mortgage-backed securities and other collateralized debt obligations, in this case, the risky assets turned out not to be these, like, toxic new financial products, but kind of this very old and stable thing, which is to say government bonds. Yeah, yeah. And, and and I think that points to something, you know, again, SVB was distinctive. It was, uh, you know, why did it why did it have to go into bonds? Well, because it had a bunch of depositors that didn't need loans because of all of the capital that has been uh, marching into Silicon Valley and to the tech sector for the last decade plus. I mean, this is all part of kind of a, the bigger landscape of recovering or the aftermath of this long, long party that we've been having since about 2010, where all this private capital uh, juiced by low interest rates, uh, sloshing around the market, not going into housing after the great 
recession, but looking for somewhere else and seeing the immense upside in tech. So the the depositors at SVB didn't need to take out loans. They didn't, you know, they had, so SVB ends up with a very unbalanced portfolio, goes into bonds, but yes, was trying to squeeze out as much value out of them as possible. And I think this is, you know, again, there's this, in a way there are parallels to, you know, going back to 2007, 2008, where you have this run up of a, a picture of part of the market, then it was housing, now it was tech, where it just seems like, well, the party's just going and going and going. And if we get out too early, we might miss something. So we're just going to keep on going as hard as we can until it's too late. Yeah. Um, let's bring in another car. Let's go to, uh, is it Jan in Cupertino? Oh, thanks for having uh, taking me on. Uh, yeah, it's, I always find it interesting that all these uh, rich people, the venture capitalists, the companies at uh, Roku that had accounts, uh, you know, prominent Republicans uh, like Mitt Romney and the billionaire venture capitalists screamed that we have to bail these people out. We have to guarantee their loans is a you know, matter of responsibility. Uh, you know, in other words, I guess like rich people, you know, they shouldn't be punished for doing dumb things with their money. On the other hand, of course, uh, poor people like students saddled with uh, college debt, I guess you might say they made some dumb decisions with their money, but we can't bail them out. We have to fight against them. We shouldn't bail them out. It always seems to be the same thing. I guess uh, you might say it's kind of like socialism for the rich and, uh, you know, rugged individualism for poor people. So I guess, you know, maybe my question for the panel would be why is it that all of these well-funded venture capitalists and, you know, rich corporations, why should they always get the bailout and, you know, the poor people like the students that are saddled with the debt? How come, you know, why are they fighting against them? How come they shouldn't get the same type of bailout? Thank you, Jan, for for that perspective. You know, uh, Margaret, I'm going to toss this one to you because, you know, Mark said earlier, you know, we can't have a banking system where you don't know if you deposit your money, if you'll be able to get it back, which is feels like in this case, why the government has, has stepped in to make depositors whole. On the other hand, if this were some regional bank in, you know, the middle of the country that wasn't tied into Silicon Valley and all of this, you know, innovation, would they be getting the same kind of treatment? Like, is there is there a fundamental fairness to what the government has done here? Yeah, and I think, you know, there's there's the sort of policy side and the politics side that are all mixed into this. And I think the caller makes a really, you know, this is a compelling argument and a counter argument. Um, and one raised, you know, by, well, Elizabeth Warren wrote a wrote an op-ed in the New York Times that appeared today that was sort of observing about this regulatory failure and this inequity. Um, th- there's, you know, I think, you know, what the, what the government is, notably SVB was, um, the the rescue package was also one that involves Signature Bank in New York, another regional bank that had a niche market. I think that was also signaling that this was not just for the for tech. But I think what what also is going on is that yes, indeed, Silicon Valley Bank was a pretty small bank. You said at the top of the program, you know, only a few years ago it had only one quarter of the deposits that it now has. Um, it ballooned to such size, and the tech industry is now is indeed everywhere. SVB had branches all over the world uh, that that there was a real worry about contagion and um and there's a careful line that's being trod in the way that the 
the lawmakers and regulators are approaching this. It is, um, you know, the depositors are being made whole or getting their money out of whatever, wherever it is. But the management and the stockholders are out of luck. Uh, so there is, you know, uh, there's a distinction being made about and all of those who ran the bank have been fired, which is different from 2008, 2009. Um, so, it, it, you know, there's some other, you know, it's a fair point, but I think there's a it's a recognition of how important the tech sector is to so many other parts of the economy and the real worry about the the skittishness and nervousness and um, the contagion that might occur. Mm. We're talking about the fallout surrounding the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and its takeover by the FDIC, looking at the impact on customers, Bay Area, banking, tech. We're joined by Margaret O'Mara, historian at the University of Washington and author of the book, The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America. Natasha Muscarena, senior reporter at TechCrunch and Mark Calvi, senior reporter covering banking and finance at San Francisco Business Times. Um, Mark, I want to get to a couple other listener uh, questions here. Um, We've heard John writes in, the directors of this bank have been removed. Do they suffer financial penalties or are they made to suffer? Do they lose their assets and houses like the companies and general public who invest in them? There should be real consequences for these people. What do do we know so far about what may happen aside from losing their jobs? Well, definitely, I'm, I'm, I'm certain every director had a stake in the bank, so that they've been wiped out in that way financially. And we don't know the full ramifications on their personal finances, but it isn't good. That you can be certain of. So, And then you've got the investigations underway. So that's going to be another uh, hit to these uh, directors that now have to cooperate with federal officials. Yeah. You know, one of the things that people like Elizabeth Warren have been pointing out was that Silicon Valley Bank's CEO had testified against um, or or actually really for changes to Dodd-Frank that made his bank less regulated in the sense that they weren't exposed to the same kind of stress testing that the biggest banks were. Um, from your position, you know, reporting on banking and finance, is that like a major contributing factor to what happened here? Like, would that kind of stress test have caught what happened here? And we also know that, you know, state regulators also have a role in all this, too. Right. Why didn't their systems also catch that maybe Silicon Valley Bank was dangerously exposed and too runnable? That's what these investigations will find out, because there's a reason banking is highly regulated. It it actually, you know, is such a pivotal role in our economy. So there, I have no doubt we're going to get answered those questions um, in the months ahead. Yeah. Um, let me ask you uh, this one, Mark. A listener writes, what should the average everyday depositor, you know, you got a checking, savings, maybe CD or money market account. What should they look for in the financial health and safety of their bank? And is it a good idea to have your money in two different types of banks, like a community bank and a credit union or a large institutional credit union? What can you tell us about kind of the the different types of banks? And I think maybe I'll even uh, abstract this question a little bit. Does the failure of Silicon Valley Bank have anything to do with what your average person should do with their money? I think it's prudent uh, for the average person to spread their money around. Uh, so they're under the insurance limits and don't have to worry about these things because if regulators miss this, how do we expect the typical American citizen to have a better understanding of the health of their banks? So I think for that individual, uh, I'd keep under the federal limits and move money around. But we're hearing from venture capitalists that say risk management, where are you banking? How, do, how concentrated is your banking relationships will now be top of mind. 
So we have we're going to be seeing some major changes as part of the fallout of SVB. Yeah. Um, Natasha, I'm uh, really curious uh, how how you are hearing that being, you know, report in your reporting, what you're hearing uh, that startups are doing with their money now or if they're thinking about things differently. Sure. The word that I'm hearing often is diversify, 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 which, you know, maybe feels obvious in retrospect, but for a lot of startups based on things that we've all talked about today, um, especially from, from Margaret, SVB was such a important part of the ecosystem. So startups right now are scrambling to see which banks they can trust one, but which are they going to be able to stay at as well? I mean, I spoke to one founder who was trying to move their money from SV SVB to First Republic Bank. Mm. And by the time the regulator stepped in on Sunday, he had already changed his mind to just leave his money in SVB at this point, <laughs> it, it, ironically feeling like it was safer there. Um, but, you know, there's no perfect rule of thumb for how many banks a startup should have right now when I'm talking to investors and asking for them to give advice. I mean, I'm hearing everything from move it around two or three different institutions to one company I spoke to um, who has over 450 bank accounts because it operates in over what? 100 countries. Oh my yeah. God. <laughs> and so, you know, there's some victory laps being taken as well. If you were ahead of this and, and you know, not over-reliant on one capital source. And let's, let's be clear, I'm, I'm sure people are not going to be just trusting one going forward. I mean, it's really interesting, though, because if I'm um, a startup, like, why should I have to have five different bank accounts? Like, at, at some basic level, even if you've – what was actually wrong with that? <laughs> you know, it doesn't actually – I guess it has been revealed that there was this risk in the system in having this bank be so central to Silicon Valley's operations. But, I mean – are people actually beating themselves up that they had made bad decisions here? Or is it more like, well, now that this risk has been revealed, now we must reckon with it? You know, I think it's a mix, but I actually am hearing a lot of humility from founders who said, listen, I've been trying to just stay in operations as my venture funding sources, ironically, were drying up as VCs were kind of being more risk averse during the downturn and the economy showed how it wasn't a super big fan of tech stocks over the past two years. And so I do feel like startup founders, some of them wish that they could call it earlier. Of course they do. Um, and the humility is, is, is twofold. It's one, maybe we shouldn't have relied on one institution. And furthermore, we need to continue focusing on fundamentals because I'll tell you the startups that had that were profitable, that had cash flow coming in and had a rainy day fund somewhere else. You know, those three fundamentals, I think those people got some sleep over the weekend. And mm -hmm. so I think there's some return to focus on that as well going forward. Uh, in similar vein, Elena writes uh, that the bank went under is one thing. Everyone should be aware of the limits of FDIC insurance and how you know problems with that can be avoided. There are plenty of ways for businesses and individuals to avoid the problem. It's not hard, and it isn't a secret. Hope one of your guests discusses this. Thank you, Mark, for doing so. Everyone seems to be a victim, but to my view, they are suffering the consequences of not spending just a few minutes considering how to diversify risks. Everyone should know about this, and it should be part of high school or earlier uh, curriculum. That's that's ambitious, Elena. Um, we're discussing the fallout surrounding the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. It's takeover by the FDIC. Look at an impact on customers, on you, on Bay Area and banking and technology industries. We're joined by Natasha Mascarena, senior reporter at TechCrunch, Margaret O'Mara, historian of the modern United States at the University of Washington and author of The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America, as well as Mark Calvi, senior reporter covering banking and finance at the San Francisco Business Times. We do want to hear from you. Have you been directly affected by the shutdown of Silicon Valley Bank? Were you a customer or did you work for a company that banked with them? 
How are you doing? Have you made made it okay through this all? Give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. Have you maybe learned something new about how the financial system works as a result of the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank? The number is 866-733-6786. Email, comments, questions, forum at kqed.org. If you just have questions in general about what's going on, we'll also take those. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it's KQED Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking Silicon Valley Bank. You probably know by now, if you live in the Bay Area, they collapsed, taken over by the FDIC. We're joined by Mark Calvi, Ports on Banking and Finance at the San Francisco Business Times, historian Margaret O'Mara, University of Washington, author of The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America, and TechCrunch's Natasha Mascarenas. Um, we are getting some really you know, interesting questions around the role that Peter Thiel and those in his circle uh, played um, telling people to withdraw their funds on Thursday and how this impacted the bank run. Um, I'd love to hear from you, Natasha, what are other VCs saying about what Founders Fund, Peter Thiel, and others who, who kind of said get out now very early, what are they saying about why that happened? I think a lot of people are looking for a specific VC fund to point to. But from what I'm hearing, there were VCs giving this advice, you know, as early as last year. And there there is no specific one firm that I think I'm seeing people necessarily agree on. There's a lot of agreement on who they're frustrated at. And I do think Founders Fund comes into play there. But really, I think it became a silent conversation in Silicon Valley until Thursday. And that's when I saw VC firms say, okay, we've heard enough. Now we're going to advise our portfolio companies to push money out. Of course, then others disagreed with that. But just in terms of who did what, I think it was more like, we're finally hearing enough people chatter about it quietly. We may as well advise our companies to at least think about it. And of course, that ended up spiraling. When they asked for when they went back to the market for money. And I mean, this is basically just that venture capitalists who are used to looking at balance sheets were seeing that Silicon Valley Bank was just holding too many of these long uh, duration bonds. Right. And so they're saying, well, this is a risk. That's what came out. 
you know, it was that. And it was also that earlier that week and a lot of people, you know, said that this was part of SVB's mistake, which was Silvergate collapse. And Silvergate was a huge bank for the crypto industry. And seeing SVB announce even any signs of volatility and repositioning, Mm. I think was really much received by, like I said, a tech community already facing tons of layoffs, tons of struggles with dry powder and and not knowing if they're going to be able to, you know, start making that next round. I saw VCs, I think their caution caught up with them a little bit. Let's say that. Hmm. You know, uh, another fascinating thing, though, not all the venture capitalists sort of turned on SVB immediately. You know, uh, this venture firm, General Catalyst, had kind of put out a statement of support for Silicon Valley Bank. It's now been signed by, you know, hundreds and hundreds. I think it's almost up to 650 VCs basically saying, like, we will keep our money here. Or we'll put our money here into an SVB or SVB successor bank that's that's working well. What have you heard about sort of those efforts by the other parts of this financial ecosystem to kind of say, hey, we'll be we'll come back if this uh, place can can shore itself up. Yeah, I mean, listen, it was proactive in a way. SVB is already back in some form in the deposit sense. Just yesterday, like we talked about, uh, the new CEO announced they're even accepting new deposits. And I'm hearing that the CEO got on the phone with a number of venture capitalists last night to make sure to spread that idea of calm. I mean, as as for the petition you mentioned, I was in the Google Doc watching investors sign on by the hour. And so what started as something that had a little bit over a dozen now as hundreds of hundreds of investors. And I mean, listen, of course, of course, it's, you know, free to do so, no shade. And it's also probably a good sign for some investors who want to make sure that their companies have and don't lose the source of of banking and of capital and of, you know, really comfort at one point. It, it doesn't hurt to put their name on that is what I'm hearing for mm-hmm. sure. I mean, there still are some really notable names that are left off. I, I think I think one that really came to mind with me was Y Combinator. That is one of the biggest mm-hmm. accelerators in startups. It's the same accelerator that helped launch Airbnb right. and, and, and Instacart. And so we're still seeing some big names. Last time I checked, not on there. And I think that still shows us how people are feeling, which is complex and, and there's two sides. Yeah. Yep. Um, one listener also points out um, everyone is stressing diversification and how it's a basic and obvious strategy. But you have a if you have a venture debt line with SVB or other similar bank, a common covenant is that you will not use any other bank for your banking needs to get access to the line of credit. You have to move all accounts to the lender. What are those startups to do? They had no choice but to go all in with the bank. Um you know, Margaret O'Mara, just thinking ahead politically about the changes that may come as a result, feels like maybe that very particular idea <laughs> that banks would be able to lock you in in this particular way might be something that um, regulators target. Yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out um, in the kind of long term banking regulation scene, financial regulation scene, and also tech regulation and kind of the Washington stance towards the tech industry as a whole that, um, you know, so much of this story is really connected to the bigger story of, again, this uh, this period of growth that culminated in the three pandemic years, too, that were extraordinary Mm -hmm. years of growth for the technology industry. And, you know, the big stories of the last several months, whether it be the collapse of um, FTX or the layoffs at the big companies or the the and the collapse of this particular bank kind of all have the same kind of root in this 
irrational exuberance to <laughs> to paraphrase Alan Greenspan's famous phrase of you know, kind of moving really, really fast, not wanting to miss out on the upside of tech growth and due diligence and governance, not universally, but in some critical places, uh, falling by the wayside. And I think from, you know, as Mark was observing about what was going on inside the bank, um, it, you know, there was there were not the checks and balances saying, whoa, maybe we should get out of this position a little earlier and the same thing ha plays out across. So I think, you know, the, the, yes, the Biden administration and the and the FDIC have kind of stepped in, but um, there are going to be some longer term ramifications here. I think that, the, you know, there's been a the, the depositors have been made whole, including some pretty big depositors. And um, in turn, I think there we may be kind of gaining further momentum for some more rules of the road that keep this type of thing from happening. Yeah. You know, Mark Calvi, one of the things that I've heard kicked around is just raising the FDIC insurance limit, maybe adding, you know, another tier, one listener suggests, between 250000 and $10 million, which would only be, say, 90% insured. Would that, is that something that uh, you've heard is on the table? Um, I've not heard that, but I'm not surprised. Uh, even during the financial crisis, it went up to 250 from 100. So I think that some raising it to some level makes sense. You just don't want to get to the point where People no longer have to worry at all about where they're putting their money, especially the business customers, because there's a, a, there's market discipline, as Sheila Bear was calling it, market discipline to make sure banks are operating in a safe and sound manner or your large business customers will walk. Mm -hmm. And I think we will. It's a very common that you have to do all your business with the bank that's making you that that venture debt loan. Uh, it'll be interesting to see whether regulation addresses that issue as well. Yeah. We're discussing the fallout surrounding the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank takeover by the FDIC. One thing we haven't talked about yet, Mark, which I think is really important, is, is this collapse of Silicon Valley Bank going to really hurt other regional and niche banks? Is this basically just going to drive people to the big, systemically important institutions that we know already have such huge assets uh, here in the United States? We're already seeing that, and that's a major concern because a community bank system adds to the vibrancy of our economy. But uh, yesterday I was hearing people move their money to another Bay Area bank, and then when they saw what was happening in the stock market, their investors are saying, keep moving, keep moving, move to higher ground, and they went to one of the big four uh, banks that they felt were too big to fail. We can't, that, we can't operate uh, in that, with that type of panic going on. Well, and just, you know, when we think about First Republic, right, their share prices totally cratered and now are like all the way back, which while maybe that's good for First Republic shareholders, that kind of volatility has got to scare some folks who are thinking about putting their money there. It does. It does become unnerving. And uh, it'll be interesting to see what's, what this uh, relief rally or rebound is being driven by. It may simply be people taking a closer look at what the Fed did Sunday in terms of making depositors whole. But that's where I say you just can't have your small depositors, even even some that have maybe just half a million at First Republic on deposit, having them worry, well, I get my money back. It's it's uh, you don't you don't want to deal with this type of volatility. Yeah. Um, let's bring in Nancy in San Mateo. Hi, thanks for taking my call. My concern is that the entire financial industry is broken. I had Silicon Valley Bank purchase my community bank. And when I started looking around doing due diligence uh, to try to 
find a place to put my Silicon Valley bank money. I went to a nearby large brokerage house. And when I started asking really basic questions, I was getting all kinds of inconsistent answers. They couldn't find or were even aware of the documents that actually govern the products they were trying to sell me. I was handed a sheet of paper that told me that uh, my, uh, if I put my money in a certain type of account, it would have SIPC coverage. But then later when I found other documents, it said, no, I wouldn't, or that it was unclear the documents themselves are inconsistent, and the people who are interacting with the public, even purportedly hire up people, they don't understand their own products. They don't understand the insurance coverage. They provide inconsistent information, and they can't even provide you with the documents. They tell you, oh, you find it yourself online, or mm. you print it out yourself. I mean, they couldn't, they couldn't even locate them. So, Nancy, and, can I ask, did you then move your money out of there to a different place, or have, were you caught up in all this over the weekend? No, I'm still, I went to Silicon Valley Bank. I couldn't get in because they said there were too many people um, that I could move it online. I could write checks that may or may not clear in the next few days, or I might have to rewrite a check, or, and so maybe I should wait I haven't moved my money yet because I don't trust any place. I can't find Mm. a place to put it where I have any faith at all. Mm. And I was so shocked when this, and when I brought up at this large brokerage house that there's people who are giving information to the public that's critical for the public to understand what it is they're actually getting themselves into. I couldn't get consistent answers. And the response was, oh, well, we've grown so big that I guess we need more coaching. Wow. In other wow. words, their growth is more important than providing reliable information mm. or having them understand the actual definitions and rights yeah. and responsibilities for their own products. They don't mm. understand their own products. Oh, man. Nancy, troubling, troubling stuff. And I think, um, you know, as we've been saying, uh, if these kinds of problems will certainly be a uh, part of these investigations. If you remember back to the financial crisis, um, it's, it's giving me flashbacks uh, to mortgage brokers not understanding the kind of loans that they were uh, signing people up for. Um, you know, uh, Mark Calvi, I want to come to you again. We've got a former Silicon Valley uh, bank employee named Ann who writes, um, is there some sort of regulation that limits what bank treasury departments can do with respect to hedging? As a former employee of Silicon Valley Bank and the Global Treasury and Payments Group, hedging for balance sheet stability is Treasury Management 101 that we taught our Silicon Valley Bank clients. For listeners, the context that's sort of necessary to understand this comment is when they bought all of these bonds that were sort of maturing later, whose prices have fallen uh, as interest rates went up, they could have bought some hedging tools, some other investments to hedge against interest rates going up. They didn't really do that from the public reporting that we have available, right, Mark? That is correct. We don't have the details on that. But uh, banking is a lot like uh, the cockroaches. If there's one problem, there's more problems likely to emerge. <laughs> if you didn't have a chief risk officer for so long uh, in recent months, what else was overlooked? Uh, that's mm-hmm. what the investigations will uncover. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, another listener question, which I think we've touched on, but I, I want to lay it out clearly for people. A listener writes, what happens to the assets of Silicon Valley Bank now? Can't the assets be used, at least partially, to fund the accounts of the depositors? Mark, do you want to take this one? Because I think it's actually a little complicated, right? Well, yes, all the, the, the bank's assets are now in the hands of the FDIC, and they will be uh, sold and liquidated and turned into cash to uh, help offset the losses that the FDIC is currently incurring uh, to make these depositors whole. So there are assets there that will be uh, able to offset some of the cost of this bank failure. Yeah. Um, let's bring in uh, Michael in Oakland. Welcome, Michael. Hi. Thanks, Moses. Um so I, I have broader concerns about the entire Silicon Valley ecosystem. Uh, ecosystem is a really standard metaphor, and it's a really good one. Um, we have a system going for 40 years, 50 years, where we have some of the top tech uh, universities in the world who are attracting from the United States and everywhere else the brightest people who are developing really brilliant business ideas and have the technical acumen to do it. Uh, Stanford in particular developed this system for spinning out businesses that mm -hmm. other people try to replicate. Um, the professors had contacts with venture capitalists and founders because a lot of them are former students or the profs themselves were former startup founders. Uh, the venture capitalists, again, like tied into this whole network and Silicon Valley Bank in particular, providing the financing that is the, the economic, you know, thing that makes right. all of this fuel together. And like, thanks to the pandemic, all of those in-person contacts between students and their profs and businesses and employees chatting around the water cooler and all this stuff, all of that has already been very badly disrupted. And now the financing system that also mm -hmm. relied a lot on in-person contacts and reputation, you know, has just been blown up. And so, you know, how does how do we ever get that back? And why here now as opposed yeah. to anywhere else in the world? Michael, such an interesting question. And I feel like, Margaret Omar, you may be the best person in the world to answer. If this is an ecosystem, is Silicon Valley Bank an indicator species for the health of that thing? Thank you so oh, much for gosh. that. Oh, gosh. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, yeah, the, the importance of in-person contact and these personal connections. I mean, it goes back. The, the founding of Silicon Bank uh, allegedly happened over a poker game. Like, that's the type of the way that the magic happens in the Valley. Now, you know, look, there have been uh, premature obituaries written for the Bay Area tech community uh, repeatedly for, for decade after decade during downturns. Um, and there's been an amazing resilience. And as the caller observes, there is so much in the region, the these these people, these assets, these institutions that are still around and have been um, really persistent over time. I don't see that just evaporating. Um, I, you know, one thing, you know, one one thing to look at as we face a downturn in the tech economy is that historically downturns have created oxygen um, and created space for new actors and 
new people and young people and new products to um, emerge for people to kind of have a, a breather from from growth. Um, and maybe, you know, what we're seeing now with the Silicon Valley Bank is uh, this is, you know, a consequence of in part of this extraordinary growth. And maybe now there's a little time to take a deep breath and see what happens next. Um, and thank you so much to all of our callers uh, and guests. We've been talking about the fallout surrounding the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank's takeover by the FDIC. Very fast-moving story. Hopefully we're able to uh, shed some light on it. We've been joined by Margaret O'Mara, historian of the modern United States at the University of Washington. Thank you so much for joining us, Margaret. It was a pleasure. Thanks. Also been joined by Mark Calvi, senior reporter covering banking and finance at San Francisco Business Times. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. And Natasha Muscarenas, senior reporter at TechCrunch. You can follow her coverage at TechCrunch.com. Thank you, Natasha. Thank you. Good luck to everyone. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.